Hi everyone, I'm Samilla and welcome to Menswear by a Woman podcast, which is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and other podcast channels. Please do carry on subscribing to Menswear by a Woman. If you haven't, please do so. And if you can spread the word, that'd be fantastic if you can. It's been growing quite a lot and um yeah, it's it's been such amazing, amazing journey from the day I started this year during the pandemic. So thank you so much for all your support and to everyone who's come on to Menswear by a Woman and everyone who's listening to Menswear by a Woman podcast. So season two, I can't tell you how much fun I've had with season two and it's still going. And um, and yeah, it's it's been amazing. The season one was absolutely inspirational and such fun um i can't tell you how much fun and how much inspiring stories i've come across on season one and season two same and um hopefully after christmas season three so today's guest my guest is jason jules and jason has is a writer content creator and a brand consultant and an image consultant but i came across his images at Drake's and I thought he is one stylish gentleman and just recently um, I spoken to Graham Marsh and um, about the book that they've both have done um, Black Ivy and I can't wait to get hold of this book um, December the 7th hurry up December the 7th so I'm going to bring Jason on board and talk about lot of things um about menswear and the book and jazz and how he began and and other um topics as well so i'm gonna get hold of jason now and bring him on Welcome, Jason. Um, I've got Jason Jules on Menswear by a Woman podcast, and I am absolutely thrilled to get him on board and talk about the new book and how it all began, and among other things as well. Hi, Jason. How are you? Thank you. I'm very good. I have zero complaints. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on board. And I know you're very, very busy um, and I'm just grateful that you had said yes to it. Um, so thank you so much. I wanted to talk to you about your about the book Black Ivy. I I I just really can't wait for this book to come out. And um, I'm actually counting the days for it to come out. And be honest with you, how did it come about, and how and why now? Um, I've always wanted to to talk about that style from, from my own perspective, in a sense. Um, primarily because I've, ever since I was like four years old, I've been into this particular look, and I didn't even know it was called Ivy. I just saw Fred Astaire movies when I was literally four years old, and um, that kind of captured my imagination. I wanted to dress like Fred Astaire. So, you know, being that kind of person, always feeling as though the clothes that I liked were not 
the same as the clothes that my peers liked. Um, it kind of made me curious as to, to, you know, why I had had this taste and why a lot of people that I, I saw who inspired me, like Sidney Poitier, etc. Yeah. Why they seemed to to not fit into the, the general language either, if you know what I mean. They seemed to be yeah. exceptions. And then, you know, growing up, seeing all those Blue Note covers, realising that actually it's not singularly a, a white upper class look. It's something that actually is way more democratic and way more um, directional than, you know, a lot of people try and convince me that it was. Just made me kind of really curious about, about those stories. And so, you know, I, I've always liked Graham's work, like always, because yeah. he, you know, he's one of the guys who actually made those Blue Note covers a thing as a, as a design and a kind of a style thing. And so at some point, maybe two years ago, I approached him and said, you know, I'd like to do a book called Black Ivy. And literally, you know, I emailed him, say about five o'clock and at about five past five, he emailed back saying, <laughs> yes, let's do it. It's on. I, I have a publisher, going to arrange a meeting next week. Great idea. It was that easy. So it's, it's, um, it's been a long time coming, though. Um, I've, I've been always, I mean, I've, I was telling Graham because I interviewed Graham just last week actually. And, um, right. and I was saying how it's so funny because I, I was, I told him that I was the only one in my class at London College of Fashion when I was doing my fashion course and Asian course. Um, I was the only one who had his book. Right. right. And, um, and I thought they were fascinating books, you know, the, the art cover of the, of Blue Note, and mm. and California one and um, it it was just amazing to have those books and I was asking him the same thing um, you know the uh, you know the book Black Ivy I I couldn't understand why there wasn't a book before you know mm. um, why nobody did one before and I always used to think well why why isn't there a book about you know these jazz players wearing ivy clothing and others who were wearing ivy clothing you know in it, it, there wasn't one and i'm so 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 grateful when i saw the first part when you, put, you when you sent it on instagram on your story saying there's a book coming out called black ivy by jason jaws and graham marsh i was like oh my god i can't wait for this yeah. to come. and i think i messaged I was messaging Graham, Graham like crazy. I was messaging yourself as well, thinking somebody just get back to me, tell me when this is coming out. <laughs> you know, but with what I wanted to know was, um, why did you feel it was right to do it now and not a few years back? Um, a lot of it is just basically personal situation. Okay. To be totally honest, as in past couple of years I've been living in Paraguay and there's a lot more time, a lot more quality time to actually write a book. I mean, as you probably know, it takes a lot of, yeah. of concentration just yeah. to kind of, you know, write an article, never mind a whole book. So I kind of created the space in Paraguay where I, I was, I allowed myself to do that. And um, yeah, that's pretty much, that is pretty much it. I mean, I think that, partly uh, I also think that nothing happens before it's time, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I had to do stuff like the, the John Simons film. 
okay. before I did this book. I had to kind of, you know, in the back of my mind, I had to kind of earn some kind of um, stripes within that ivy world, within this ivy world in which you and I exist. Yeah. Um, in order to kind of have a platform and a level of authority to write this book and also kind of insight into the, the community that, that we're, the, you know, the immediate community we're engaging with because this book is obviously relevant to people way outside of that world, like completely outside the, the Ivy world. But the immediate audience is that. So it's like working out who you're talking to and how you're going to communicate these ideas to them and also what, what they're already thinking. And, and so, you know, the John Simons film, the stuff I'd written before, um, you know, for GQ magazine, et cetera, all that stuff kind of informed me as to, to how to write this book. So with, with the book, right, um, when I was speaking to Graham, there was also, I wanted to, I was speaking to him, like, you know how the jazz players were wearing ivy clothing and all that? Um, and with all the racism going on and all, all that, um, yeah. was there, were there ever put down for it? Like, you know, don't, why, why are you wearing, why should they be wearing ivy clothing because you're black? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Was it, yeah. was, was that kind of, was that introduced in, I mean, was that kind of around at that time as well? Um, yeah, no, it was, yeah. It was yeah, it? Oh absolutely. my God. I didn't know absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, there's this idea, and it still exists, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's the, like you said before, a lot of what the stuff we confront may mm. be more subtle, but it's, you know, the parallels to what happened in the past are still there. So, yeah. you know, in, in the book, I look at a film, or we look at a film, sorry, yeah, a film by Leroy Jones. Yeah. And within that, there's a, a quote where the lead actress says, why are you wearing these clothes? You know, the clothes of the master. You know. What? Your your granddaddy was like a, was one of his slaves. Who do you think you are? And um, so, yeah, it is. it was this assumption that they were dressing above their station. But I think a lot of the guys wearing those clothes were aware of that and were, were confronting that prejudice intentionally by wearing those clothes. What makes me um, fascinated by it was, you know, with all the racism that was going on during those times and how mm. these jazz players just carried on playing yeah. and carried on doing what they loved, um, despite with all of that going on. Um, that's what fascinates me more than ever because they didn't give it up because yeah. they carried on doing what they love. Um, you know... It was, it was something that, you know, when you hear about, when you read about it, and I think Graham was saying the same thing. Like, you know, yes, there was a lot of, of course, there was a lot of racism going on, but you know, they just, just blocked it out and just played. So it was like with the yeah. clothing, I suppose, as well. At the same time, they just blocked it out and just carried on wearing what they want to wear, because Graham was yeah. saying how you know, Mal Davis, Mal um, Davis wanted to be in the front cover of his albums and you know they didn't want mm. that but he fought for it and he said no I want to be yeah. on it so and you know the front cover of um Black Ivy book 
he was telling me yeah. how, you know, that image. Where did you get all these images from, actually? I mean, how did you go about it, getting images? I mean, that was, in a sense, the easy part and the hard part, <laughs> but definitely the fun part. We had to basically, you know, we, we all, myself, um, my, Graham, as well as Tony, who's the publisher, right. we all had this kind of, I don't know, archive, <laughs> these personal archives of, of images that, you know, I'm sure you do. If you're yeah. into this stuff, then yeah. you just collect images. Yep. You collect books, you collect images, you collect album sleeves. You know, in the back of your mind, you've seen this film where you sh- you're sure there's a still somewhere that you can use. So we just pulled all these things together and lots of internet searches into, you know, these crazy rabbit hole kind of archives where there's, you know, some almost forgotten photographer who just has a wealth of material that no one's ever seen. So it was a lot of fun, but the danger for me was that I was, I kept on searching for more and more images, feeling as though there's, there's some kind of nugget that we haven't found or unearthed. <laughs> Whereas I should have actually been writing in the book. So, you know, I was kind of, I'm kind of making my, my life a bit harder for myself <laughs> by enjoying the process too much. How long? But yeah, I also think that what's what started off I mean, like like probably like for you and me you know we start uh, start off with a passion we're into what yeah. we do yeah and we're enthusiastic and it's it's all good yeah. and then you kind of get confronted by these challenges it's kind of these people who have, have doubts and kind of want to undermine what you're doing and question it and because you're so passionate about it you actually continue but somehow your your passion it somehow involves a level of resistance as well, you know. So you realise that actually, outside of my my own imagination, my own vision, what's happening is I'm actually being subversive. I'm actually challenging people's preconceptions of who I'm meant to be and what I'm meant to be doing. So you become aware that you're you're actually kind of yeah a revolutionary, uh, you know, a rebel because you're challenging the status quo. I think, like you said, they didn't change no. because they were so committed to what they were doing. Yep. And they became more and more informed that what they were doing was actually changing stuff. It may have started out as, you know, the complete pleasure pursuit and they were enjoying what they were doing and sharing with their community and like-minded people. And then they realized that actually there's a political kind of um, element to this. And, and they either embrace it or run away from it. And, you know, the guys who who wore black ivy uh-huh. embraced that challenge and, and pushed forward. And that's, uh, it's like, well, yesterday, right, at seven o'clock in the morning, I started to design, right? And I finished yeah. at two o'clock in the morning. There you go. And I didn't, you know, it's so, <laughs> it's the most, and I forgot everything what that was going on. You know, I had to, yeah. you know, I just totally forgot. And, and it wasn't just clothing that I was designing. I was doing designing like textiles and everything else that was going on in my head that I wanted to mm-hmm. bring it out kind of thing. And it, it was, I didn't even realize it was two o'clock in the morning that I was still designing. So that kind of passion, despite whatever yeah. was going on and whatever's happened, um, trust me, um, you know, I used to feel like, what, what what is it that they ha- that they don't see in me? So it's mm. like you know, 
relating back to the jazz players like Miles Davis and the rest of them, you realise that, you know, they just blocked everything out with all the crap that was going on that they were told. Yeah. And that was something that, you know, even looking at the books and listening to their music, you feel it, actually. You, you really, yeah. really feel it. And um, I think sometimes when you struggle so much, right, you fall in love with what you do more. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Because it keeps you sane. It, yeah. It's your reason. It's your, it motivates you. Yeah. Because and it it's was, yours. Yeah. And if it was very easy... I'm not saying that what I went through that I should have gone through that because I don't think no one has the right to tell you can't put an Indian button on a um, man's cardigan or, you know, <laughs> the whole room is white wool. We don't want any splash of colour, which was Ooh. which was something that I was, which I didn't even know what that meant. But when I got home, my father <laughs> told me, what the whole wall of sorry all of the white walls we've got all white walls we don't want any splash of splash of color so my father told me what that meant um but you know even even with all that crap you still carry on because you have to because if you if you give up they won basically yeah right and yeah. no one should ever give up in what they love to do no one should no one has the right to let anyone give up what they love to do. Um, the other thing of right... And for some of us, though, if we give up, then what else are we going to do? Exactly. I've had a... I've, I've, got some, I've got a friend of mine who was telling me how a lot of people have given up because they just couldn't take it anymore. With, you know, and, and, and I, re I, I understand that because it is a massive challenge out there. Um, and everybody tells me it's... It's a very hard trade. We all know it's hard trade, but it's just harder for mm. few of our, few of us um, of color. I'm sorry, just got to say that few mm. people of color um, who are in this trade. It's much harder for us as well, much harder. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a uh, the reality is it's not just this trade. You know, it's I all mean, trade. I think it's. It's all the trades. It's the, it's the whole landscape that we're involved in, yeah. and it kind of it's almost unfair to, to put the pressure on the fashion industry and say it should be this and it should be that, except for the fact that the fashion industry kind of claims to be this and that. <laughs> you know, what I mean, it claims to be diverse. It claims to be progressive. It claims to be full of um, you know egalitarian urges and kind of celebrate the outsider and celebrate difference. And then you get closer to it and you get involved in it. And it really, more often than not, doesn't. So, you know, that's, that's kind of why, one reason why I take issue with the fashion industry. And also because what the fashion industry is about is presenting images to everybody else, the images of ourselves, the images that we're meant to kind of aspire to. And so if it's not presenting diverse, um, egalitarian, empowering images then it's really kind of selling you a bit of goods. It's like selling you a lie because it's saying that actually this is what we do and then doing the complete opposite. So, yeah, I mean, maybe the, the car industry is as um, unfair as the fashion industry, but the car industry doesn't run around saying that we're diverse and we're looking for, out for the outsider yeah. and we're championing the, the underdog. So 
I take less issue in the car industry than I do in the fashion industry for that reason. It's like, um, it's like when you hear about things like, you know, what's happening in cricket at the moment and, mm. and slowly, slowly everything's coming up on, on the surface now. And you just think what's next. It's, it's sad because you know that a lot of people have so much talent, but there's, um, you know, if it's because of a skin colour, that, that's the reason why you don't want them to be there. And I, I just don't get it, Jason. I just don't understand. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's protection and the protection instincts everywhere. And, you know, what I'm kind of happy about is the fact that what we're seeing now is a constant kind of challenge to all that stuff. On, on almost every level so you know in a sense we're, we're, we're occupying a really good time because it's very hard to to hide those things and the minute they they appear is the minute they really do get challenged so yeah I have to I have to be really optimistic about this situation right now well um I hope so because it has to change anyway it's got to change and mm. I think it's it's taking it is changing but somebody said to me not quick enough so you think yeah. well at least it's changing you know what I mean at least it's changing yeah. because it, forget about it quick enough but at least it's changing that's the biggest thing because that gives us mm. all hopes who, going back into menswear who would you say that's your favourite menswear designer at the moment Oh, and why? Well, it's tricky because because there's a question, of, yeah, as to to the whys. Yeah, if you know what I mean. I mean, I love. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not into fashion. Let's let's be clear. So really, I'm not into. Yeah, I'm not into trends. <laughs> sorry, as you know, I'm not into trends and all that stuff. So the, my reasons for liking certain things aren't necessarily the same as you know. What you what we might expect them to be. For example, mm. I like Ralph Lauren. Yeah. Um, I love Ralph Lauren. Right. The the clothes are completely romantic. They're um, super well designed. There's a sense of heritage about them. But also, there's a sense of um, inclusion and diversity. You know, like the, his. I think it was his fiftieth um, yeah. anniversary yeah. show where yeah. he had. I don't know. It was just amazing. You know, that in Central Park, there were just so many different types of people, different age groups, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, different races, yeah. the whole lot. And, you know, when you think about the period that he did that show in, i.e., you know, um, with the Republican Party being in power, et cetera, et cetera, it's a really powerful political, maybe of a small P, but powerful statement of, of you know, a vision of what the United States could be. And so... You know, because I like the clothes, because I like the, the, the approach, you know, one of my favorite designs is definitely Ralph Lauren. But then I also like Tom Brown, who, okay. again, is challenging the idea of, of you know, that, that idea of what, uh, what America stands for in terms of its uniform and its expectation of what masculinity should be about. And he's yeah. constantly kind of showing new ways of, of reinterpreting the reinterpreting the the classic flannel suit okay, which is yeah. in a way reinterpreting how we should perceive the united states and how we should perceive men full stop 
And, you know, again, on the most basic level, the clothes are beautiful. The quality is ridiculously high. And he's, he's thought-provoking. So I think he's amazing. But then, you know, there's like someone like Nicholas Daly, yeah. who is British and, you know, he's, he's been around for a while, but I'd still say he's up and coming because he's not finished yet. He's got, you know, I just see so much potential in the impact that he can have globally that, it, you know, to me, it's just really inspiring. And the way he mixes music and heritage with fashion and culture, and there's always a kind of like a, I know, a unifying factor. You know, I mean, he, he shows happen in, in these kind of maybe religious spaces. He works with um, Shabaka Hutchinson a lot. Yeah. So there's a musical element. But there's, there's also, you know, he, he kind of taps into different aspects of, of what black culture represents, what black culture contains. But he doesn't necessarily tap, tap into the cliché. So, you know, currently he's into kind of martial arts films and Bruce Lee and all the rest of it, which... It's part of our heritage, but isn't like so obvious to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, stuff like, like that that I find really inspiring that, that he does. Um, there's a guy called Harris Elliott who I work with. So I've got to kind of declare an interest. Harris Elliott has a brand called The Tings. And that's like a kind of a postmodern fashion brand where he's using um, a lot of kind of reclaimed material and found material. And kind of elevating it. So one of the things he does is he has these shopping bags made from, again, found material, but they're so beautiful and they're so crafted, like no bag is the same. No two bags are made the same. And so he's kind of taking stuff from, you know, the diaspora and putting it into a fashion context in a a kind of, uh, I don't know, it's like an interruption. It's like a a real, you know, it's not confrontational because the stuff's so beautiful, but it does challenge the way we see luxury. And I think that's, that's amazing. So yeah, there are definitely a few people out there, but uh, to be honest, a lot of time, I just like people. I just like the way people dress, you know, you see them in the street and you kind of give them the nod, which is one thing I miss about being in London, Yeah, you know, seeing really cool people and just like, you know, I know it sounds weird, but I'm sure you do it too. Just no, walking no, up to right. them saying, right. I like what you're wearing. You yeah, know. because um, it, it's something that you know in certain part, you know, in London, it's like a lot of individual styling, you know, a mm-hmm. hell of a lot of individual styling, and I, I'm sure New York or you know in the states it's the same, and other parts of European countries as well. But in UK, in London, I see more, especially, yeah, yeah very, very different, you know, and everyone dresses so differently. Um, you know, it's it's you're right. It, it's very different from other parts of the world, um, which is quite unique in a way. Mm. And it's kind of reassuring. You know, it's like you kind of feel. Oh, sorry, I'm saying you. I feel a lot of the times like an outsider. Like you know, I'm in this environment, but I'm not necessarily of this environment. And then when you you kind of see people who, again, look different but are really rocking their difference and celebrating it and owning it. It just kind of feels reassuring and inspiring that actually it's, it's okay. You know, it's all right not to be completely, not to feel completely part of this environment, but still kind of enjoy it. How do you feel about sustainable fashion though in menswear? 
Uh, it's so tricky. It's just so because I don't know. I, I just I think it's one of the most important elements yeah. of fashion. But because fashion is part of a wider industry, it's still part of something that is going to be really difficult. You know, because it's part of manufacturing, it's part of transport, it's part of um, the whole lot, if you know what I mean. Like the oil industry impacts on the fashion industry. So how do you make how do you make it work? I, I think part of it is to to not expect brands to be perfect, to do the bit they can do. And hopefully at some point, collectively, they'll make a, a bigger difference. But I, I really think that because the fashion industry claims to be all these amazing things, yeah. one of the things they should at least try and do is, is develop a kind of an ethical base and a, and a focus on sustainability. Yeah, I think it's time. I mean, it was time like yeah. a few years back, but it didn't happen. Um, yeah. But I think now, I think they have to, because it's just becoming <laughs> ridiculous now. And it's also, they're missing, the fashion industry seems to be missing this opportunity, and that's one reason why I'm, 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 you know, I'm kind of suspicious of the industry, because ultimately, you know, the fashion industry can change the way people see things. One minute, a pair of, um, I don't know, skinny jeans is in. Yeah. And everybody's wearing skinny jeans, whether they fit them or not, whether they suit their body type or not, it's skinny jeans all the way. And then next minute, it's baggy jeans, deconstructed jeans, um, anti-fit. And everybody's wearing those, whether it fits their body type or not, it's, you know, anti-fit all the way. So... If, if the fashion industry has this level of influence on the way we see stuff and the way we see ourselves, why isn't it using it, that influence, to help us understand what sustainability looks like or what diversity really looks like or equality really looks like? Yeah. It's, it, you know, it has so much power, but it's not using it. And, that, and that's part of my frustration, with the, the, part of my suspicion with the fashion industry. That is so well said, what you just said. And I 100% agree with that. The industry has so much power that is um, unbelievable power, but yet they don't use it in the right way. And you know, um, you know how everyone, you know, says uh, it's suddenly, you know, that they're like, oh yeah, we're going to be sustainable suddenly. And you just think, well, you could have done it about a few years back, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You had yeah. all the power in the world to do it a few years back, and you could have done it. And you know, and fashion's all about change, right? Um, <clears throat> it's not about um, followers. It's it's about leading, right? And yeah, you absolutely. Think, and you just think, well, why couldn't one of you started to lead? Mm. Because the rest would have followed, yeah. you know. And yeah. and I always believe that. Like, it only takes one to change, make that change. And if one change, mm. if one of uh, one could change it, then the rest would have followed. And I, yeah. and they, and they didn't because they will make up excuses and excuses and excuses. And now suddenly everybody wants to change. Everybody wants to be sustainable. Mm. Like certain um, brands you think who hardly used to 
talk about sustainability suddenly is talking about it and you just think are they just getting on this on this bandwagon i think or are they really really yeah. doing this because they really realize how much it has ruined the planet you know mm-hmm. so that's yeah, how and I I'm, feel. I'm sure there are definitely brands who are more sustainable than they let on because i know that there's also this prejudice against the idea of an ethical brand because maybe 10, 15 years ago, maybe longer than that, yeah. the idea of an ethical brand was something that was, you know, kind of itchy jumpers and bad yeah. design and, you know, stuff that would shrink in the wash because it didn't have any <laughs> elastine in it. You know, it's like yeah. this type of prejudice against the idea of, of what an ethical brand looked like. It was all it was more worthy than worthwhile. And um, I think they have to get through that kind of, um, kind of commercial resistance as well. But you're right. Fashion is meant to be cutting edge. It's meant to be, you know, all about change. Yeah. So if, if any industry can, can change the way we, pers- we perceive ethical business practice, it has to be them. It has to, we have to look to them to make that, that difference. Yeah, definitely. Because otherwise, how else would it will change? You know, it's because <clears throat> if you've got the power... If you've got the huge power, then use it in the, in a in a way that you know good comes out of it. Yeah, and yeah, and what you know, one of those people who were championing ethical practices. I mean, for example, uh, Catherine Hamner has definitely yeah, been a, a front runner in that. Yeah, but also Vivian Westwood. You know, buy better, buy yeah, less. Exactly. But because somehow they see the industry kind of seems to ostracise people like that and say so they're kind of number one because they're successful but number two because maybe because they're women but yeah. they, they seem to be like turned into these exceptions these eccentric kind of pe- people who are in, into this pursuit that actually is at a loss a, is at a loss and will never ever change the way the, the mainstream perceives ethical practices but I actually think that if they were taken more seriously and given more more credit more credibility generally they they'd have their influence would be greater exactly um and you know i have this conversation with so many other people right and we all say the same thing if this trade is so powerful as it says it is it can do it can make the change it could have and yeah. they're saying it well now they are and you can see the footprints of garments, who's making it, where they're coming from and all that stuff. But there's still a long way to go. There's still a lot to go and a lot to do, you know. Um, and and you can only hope, you know, as as time, as a generation comes up and, you know, goes that it, it will get better, hopefully. I hope so, because, I mean, in a weird way, yeah. the past 15 years has actually gone worse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it has some ground to make up because when you think about fast fashion and what that involves yeah. and its popularity and how, you know, driving down the prices of, of products so actually the people who make the products get paid so little that it's, yeah, it's, it's not even, you know, a perc- not even a percentage of, of you know, their living, their living costs. It's just kind of horrendous. And, it, and this is a, a moment in time. This the industry hasn't always been about fast, fast fashion. No. So, you know, we have to kind of 
undo a lot of what's going on now before we even get back to a, a kind of a fair trade situation. I know. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, there was a story on Instagram where um, the lady from Bangladesh, she was crying her eyes out saying that, you know, working so hard for little amount of fast fashion and uh, there was a there was a girl I think from the states and she saw it and she said that it changed her whole entire prospect of um, fast fashion right and you just think you know that that one video changed one person's you know view of what fast fashion is and she actually literally said she's never ever going back into fast fashion and, and, you know, the woman who was in Bangladesh, um, she was speaking in Mingali and um, she was crying her eyes out and she was just saying how, you know, people don't understand how hard it is working night and day for very little amount. Yeah. And it actually makes you feel crap, actually. You, you just realise and you're thinking, it's 21st century, right? Yeah. And we're living like this. We're making others yeah, I mean, it's horrendous. It's just like, you know, when you look at homeless and poverty and thinking, are you really, I mean, <laughs> it's 21st century. How can there be so much poverty and and people living homeless? How, you know, yeah. you, you just, I don't understand. I don't get it. You know, you, you just get to a point thinking, why and how did this happen? Mm. Anyway, um, that's another a podcast about things like that. I think, you know, um, what would you say to someone trying to come into this trade, um, into fashion and or into journalism? What would you say um, to them? How would you tell them to go about it? And what would you say? What they should go? How should they go about it? That's that's a really hard question. Okay. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I guess that's why you asked it, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Definitely. I would say again, I'd have to picture I'd have to picture that person and I'd figure they I'd say figure out what it is that you want to say. Okay. First. It's pointless going into the fashion industry because you like the look of the fashion industry because the closer you get to it the less it looks like <laughs> you thought it was. <laughs> so you have to have a reason to go into it that's bigger than the industry itself. You have to have a personal motive, a personal passion that's mm -hmm. going to sustain you. And also, if you do have a personal passion, then it's going to allow you to do other stuff. So you may go in wanting to be a designer, but then you may end up managing a factory or being the merchandising person for a store or a brand. But if that, that reason you have is, is strong and has depth, then you'll be able to express it through whatever platform, whatever medium, whatever role you, you're playing. And I think that's the key. You have to have a reason that's bigger than the industry you're going into in order to survive it. And how would you, um, I have loads of people asking me, how do you survive it? By believing in the reason more than you believe in the industry. Yep. Just by basically believing in what you love doing, I suppose, and that's how yeah. you survive it. Um, yeah. That's the only way you will be able to survive it because it is absolutely mental. 
<laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely yeah. mental. But now, I mean, funny enough, I can laugh about it. But then I couldn't. Uh, but it's um, that's what I say. It's, it's absolutely mental. Um, so just be prepared yeah. and be ready for it and just go with the flow yeah. of it. And you're right. Um, if you're going in as a designer, try and do, and if you can't get the job as a designer, but try and get into something in the industry mm. that gets you your foot in the door. Yeah. You know? And also get the experience because having experience in that world yeah. means that you'd, even if your foot doesn't get so far into the door that you, you get a, a lovely, juicy job, if you have the experience, then you can, you can survive outside that industry by doing your own thing. Yeah. But without the knowledge and without, to be honest, the contacts, it's really hard to do stuff. So, you know, you, you basically have to be, be prepared to recognize it's a learning process. Yeah, exactly. And oh, and the other basic thing is super basic is remember everybody's name and um, <laughs> remember that you know you might see them today in one place, but in five years' time they they could be somewhere else. And so you see their potential and positively, as opposed to you know kind of labeling them as as something that is now. See the best in everybody, I think. Jason, do you, um, I suppose you look at art. Um, yes, I'm, do you? No, yes? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm super into the visual, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. 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 Uh, so, if, you are, if you're if super into visual, are you, is it more like photography? Um, it's all of the above. It's... It's definitely photography. It's definitely, you know, styling, the way people like stylists do their stuff. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, visual artists and sculptors and, and all sorts of things. You know, it it kind of, you know, when I, when I look at stuff, it kind of takes me somewhere else. So, I, you know, to keep me sane, I need to look at other people's crazy work, if you know what I mean. When you say crazy work, who's your, which kind of artist are you thinking of crazy work? Um, someone like Erwin Worm, who okay. isn't a surrealist, is a sculpture artist, and yeah. he, you know, his stuff is just completely nuts. <laughs> and it's, it's, to me, it always kind of goes beyond expectation. And sometimes, you know, there, there are, he asks, there's a challenge and he asks people to, to kind of do these particular poses and things. Or he has these crazy bubble cars or buildings that are kind of like they're on steroids. And, um, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're kind of fascinated. Yeah. I, I am kind of fascinated by that. Just not even just to think what he, what goes through his head. I mean, that's kind of the mundane part of it. It's just the idea that he's creating these things are, are possibilities, you know, like you're walking down the street and everything that's normal, then bam, you see this this new possibility that you never expected. And I think that's kind of what, what excites me. But then you see, you know, I was thinking about um, a guy called Dash Snow, yeah. who is past now. And he, he was a, an amazing um, photographer. And his, his work, you know, very New York based, and his work was quite intense and quite visceral. 
and um and the opposite to kind of the fantasy of surrealism etc but it but i guess because it's authentic it kind of hits home at the same time if you know what i mean kind of like larry clark or someone one of those larry clark movies or something um i know i just i just love the visual if you know what i mean when you say about also stylists right what which mm. era of menswear would you say was more stylish than ever um, it's tricky because what I like about menswear right. is that it, you're, as, it, as time goes on, your perspective changes. And so, you know, the, the 70s were supposed to be a horrendous period, a, a, you know, a horrendous mistake because there were flares and there were <laughs> kind of these flyaway collars and stuff yeah. like that. But as you move on, there's a different kind of idea of it and it seems quite elegant. And, you know, kind of men embracing their, their kind of more softer side and more playful side. But then you look at the 80s and you think, OK, it was horrendous because all these, this power dressing and these big shoulders and all the rest of it, <laughs> you know. And then as you, you know, but as time goes on, you just yeah, there's like a, a, a confidence and a, a, a kind of a, an attitude towards tailoring that is really engaging now so but but for me it kind of goes back to i don't know when i was four and watching fred astaire movies and and that period and you know i still watch fred astaire movies and Same it never here. fails to kind of inspire and and make me feel as though actually there's always these little details that you kind of keep on trying to trying to figure out well, and the, the way clothes are made you know but, way way clothes were worn in fact but also, right, Just, um, with Fred Astaire, right, I always, you know, even now when I look at some of the movies, right, when he's dancing, yeah, yeah. and with his garb, you know, the, what his trousers, his, you know, what he's wearing, they don't move out of place. <laughs> you know? No. No. They just, he could be dancing, you know, doing whatever. But if you yeah. follow the uh, follow every part of the clothing, does not move out of place. I mean... What yeah. did they used to do? Pin them down on them or something, you know? Well, and also the one thing he did, he specified, was for most of his suits, a period for sure, yeah. not to have any back vents because oh, okay. they would, you know, okay. yeah. they would flap, et cetera. Right, et cetera. So, yeah. and, and that to me, you know, I was talking to somebody yesterday about why Fred Astaire was dressed so well. And obviously... Like you know, like we just said, he was really considerate about how the clothes looked on him. But also because he was a dancer, he was super aware of his body. He was super confident and comfortable yeah. in his body. Yeah. And so, you know, just the way he wore clothes and the way he walked and presented himself meant that he was in tune with the clothing. He was comfortable, and um, I think that's definitely something that, that you know we can all aspire to. It's just like like you know, it's. I, I personally the dressing world starts with liking your body and liking yourself and the rest will follow if you know what I mean yeah that's what I'm working on anyway <laughs> <laughs> well you're well you're very stylish though that's my mission to, to like myself more yeah but so Jason you're I very can... stylish though thank you you're very that. very stylish so um, you know when I see your images um, yeah I'm thinking to myself 
you don't have to try. <laughs> no. Also, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, let's not pretend I'm quite obsessed with clothes and I really enjoy clothes. So, right. my, you know, if I'm saying to, to somebody, when you get into the industry, remember the thing that you love most. Well, one of the reasons why I'm still kind of working in the style of fashion clothing industry is because I just love clothes. I wouldn't know what else to do, if you know what I mean. And it kind of self-propagates because you end up meeting people and talking about clothes or this, or talking about how to develop new ideas around clothes and what, and what they can do. I mean, for me, because I'm so into this, this thing, yeah. it kind of feeds into everything else. So, you know, from styling, to, like I say, to art, to, to music, it, it seems to impact on everything, to body identity, the whole lot. But it, as a kid, it started off with just liking clothes. And it's funny how, um, because I remember speaking to Jason um, maybe about two two years ago, I think. Do you remember on the yeah? And and you you were the first one who made me realise when I started to go into menswear, <laughs> and that was the age of seven or something, or six or seven, when I um, right. you know, started to look at my dad's. Um, you know, how the suits were made and all that stuff. And even then, I wanted to be an astrophysicist, so I didn't even know nothing about menswear. <laughs> it's weird how you say that well, at the age of four, you was looking at Fred Astaire films, and I was that, like at six, uh, looking at my father's tailored garments, yeah. you know? And yeah. being fascinated how it all worked. So it's... Um, and those are the moments that inform your identity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, you know. And um, and then mum would wear these most amazing saris. And that's right. where I think I got my colour for menswear because, you know, colour's really important to menswear, yeah. I always say. Um, you know, if you get colour wrong um, in menswear, then, you know, no matter how good that detail jacket is, it will still lo look yeah. wrong. Do you believe in that also? Colour is very important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what I like about this moment in time mm -hmm. is that people are less afraid of colour. Yeah. I mean, there's still exactly. a dominant, you know, grey, black, navy. I love navy. Um, kind of passion that, that menswear is, is, seems to be all about. But <laughs> it's, you know, people who... who there's, there's, a, there's a, like a there's permission now to play with colour. Yeah. And I, I really I really enjoy that. I mean, the, one of the sad things about um, this current time is the fact that the tie isn't as popular as it, as no, it was generally. Yeah. Because, you know, the tie is one of those things that allows you to play with colour and pattern. And, um, you know, I, I, I really like that. So even now at the moment I'm wearing a tie. You know, I'm at home. No one's seeing me, but I'm wearing a tie because it just feels like it makes sense, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I do, because I, I think um, I think ties are so important for men. I don't mm. know why, but I, I believe that ties are very important. Uh, it's it's a, it, If you're wearing a suit and you wear a tie, it just gives that extra yeah. feel to it. Um to me, uh, when I see a guy wearing a suit and then tie, yeah, you know, that's it. <laughs> you don't need anything else, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, 
you could wear the worst shirt ever going, but if there's a really good tie, <laughs> mm. that changes it all, you know? Would you? Yeah, you, I mean, that's one thing you don't want to shortchange yourself on is there's the quality of the tie, for sure. <laughs> Who's your favourite? <laughs> um, one thing I would like to ask you was, um, what's your favourite piece of garment in menswear, would you say? Um, that's tricky. I keep asking you all these tricky questions, don't I? Yeah. I've got to stop I mean, asking like the question. Everything. Like... You know, I mean, we were talking earlier about the, the, the button-down shirt, the white shirt, and I, I like, at the moment, I'm going for a phase of liking white shirts. And um, I, I got a white Drake's shirt yeah. recently, and... That's, I think that's the reason it kind of just set me off into this kind of <laughs> obsession with white shirts. It was just like this crazy pound because I tend not to wear them, you know, as in a white colored shirt. And um, for some reason, I, I just picked one up at Drake's and it's, it's just so beautiful that, yeah, and I'm, I'm noticing the power of, of, that, of that particular thing. So at the moment, that's one thing I'm into, definitely, is... The white shirt, but particularly as the white button-down shirt, and the cut, the cut, the cut to the white shirt. Um, just a regular fit. Just cut. a regular fit, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. But your you, um, you white shirt, like well, you mean slim fit? Yeah, because uh, normally you know, is it slim fit, regular fit, or that's uh, a classic fit? Yeah, I'm, as long as it fits, I don't really mind. <laughs> <laughs> But my dad always used to say, right, um, you know, white shirt are so important to have in a man's wardrobe. Yeah, Yeah, and, you know, historically, well, historically, I mean, I tend to avoid them. Maybe because, you know, coming from a base, coming from a working class background, I just figured that there's too much of an indulgence. You're going to put something on it, you're going to stain it, you're going to ruin it very easily. And so I try to, I have tried to avoid white shirts but maybe my maturity I'm, I'm you know learning a bit a bit about it <laughs> yeah getting a bit more confident for sure there's another thing right that ben from um who used to work at drake's benjamin mm-hmm. so yeah. we had this um chat about white socks <laughs> men right. wearing white socks so mm-hmm. i'm not very keen on men wearing white socks because I just find it right, and he was saying that you know it's though so him and a few others wore white socks and they could carry it off really really well. Yeah. Do you yeah. think white socks are then, gone? No, I mean that's that's like I was saying about the you know flares in the seventies and those power shoulders in the eighties. Yeah. White socks <laughs> were you know. Again, being working class, white socks were, were part of my growing up. It was it was a thing. And when I discovered white toweling socks, when I went to New York, first of all, it was like amazing. I've it was not like come mind across white toweling socks. This was the holy grail of socks. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I've not come across Sorry. white toweling socks. No? Oh, you need to. I need to have Bliss. a look at the white toweling socks. Yes. You know, that's a new thing yes. now, you know? <laughs> Right, I might be changing my mind about white socks actually, because every time I see white it. socks, men wearing white socks, I'm like, nah, 
No. And again, you know, they became this this marmite thing, didn't they? People just yeah. hated the idea of, of guys wearing white socks. And like Ben said, there are a group of people who are definitely able to, to pull it off. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm not sure if I'm one of them. I, I like white socks, and depending on what I'm wearing and where I am, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely wear them. But I also like, again, no socks or some weird colored socks. I, I tend not to wear patterns, but yeah, that's just me. I think plain I'll socks are better yet. than patterns. I think plain socks Sorry. are much better. I think in menswear, I prefer plain socks than patterns. Yeah. I don't know why. Because I think um, I think it looks better with clo- with certain clothing, like if you're wearing tweed mm-hmm. or, you know, checks or anything like that. Um, it just makes the whole outfit look better with plain socks. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. You know, favourite fabrics? Um. Well, Oxford cloth, seersucker, tweed, denim. Um, Dunno. <laughs> well, you said actually quite That's a few, few good ones there. Yeah. You said quite a few good ones, and and with the mention of those um, names of those fabrics, I can see a whole entire collection happening. Uh. <laughs> you know. <laughs> So I could see a whole collection just happening in my head at the moment, thinking, oh, yeah, do that. You know, have denim with tweed. That would look good. This is it. You know, um, have a denim jacket with tweed coat on it. That would look that would look yeah, amazing. I mean, you know, so... Essentially, you know, tweed is workwear. You know, denim is workwear. So they, they, so those two can they work, should yeah. work together. <laughs> um. What's your plan for your next book, Jason? Um, Do you have any plans for a new book? I have a couple of plans for a couple of books. All right, okay. But I can't say. say. I know you would say that because Graham said the same thing. So is it working with Graham? or? Um, it's working with the publishers for sure. Okay. And I'd definitely like to work with Graham again. I'd like, I'd like to do some other stuff with Graham. Okay. You know, maybe like a, I don't know, like to just follow him around and do a documentary, to be honest. Oh, that'd be good. That's what I'd like to do. And would it be based on jazz? <laughs> It'd be based on Graham. It'd be based on Graham, okay. <laughs> Whatever Graham's into. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, when I was actually talking to him, I, I actually learned so much from him and I, I actually yeah. didn't want to stop talking to him because I just thought, yeah. you know, he was talking about things and it's like, oh my God, I didn't know about that. Um, what, what, how? Okay. You know, it was fascinating mm. talking to him actually. And what he He's was saying. He's such a heavyweight. He was yeah. so, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant talking to Graham. And I, you know, we actually discussed about um, Madras checks. Ah, uh, I forgot that. Yes, let's add that to the list. Ah, <laughs> uh, you see, um, but we were talking about Madras checks, right? How, you know, huge it was, you know, and he was saying that how it you, with the Madras checks, right, how it would bleed when you wash it. Mm-hmm. And he said that was the best thing about it. And I said, yeah. And then he said, uh, and I, yeah. And I said, okay, I would love to do, I guess you should do some designs for Madras checks. I said, right. Mm-hmm. After this conversation, I'm going to go and start doing design work and I'll send them to you. 
And I did, actually. And, yeah. he, and he liked them. And he said, yeah, I like them because I made them into jackets. So it was, wow. um, yeah, I'll send them to you, actually, Jason. You can have a look. Wow. Um, and those, and I said the checks I did myself. So it's not like it's out there. So I designed my own checks. But, um, yeah, it was, um, it was amazing. Um, I can't wait. But that's the other thing about, you know, Madras, like Graham's saying, Madras checks started out as this kind of amazing new quote-unquote fabric and then they realized that it was it bled yeah you know, after a wash etc it yeah. kind of started bleeding yeah. and, and that's like a design flaw but they they embraced it and they started celebrating the fact that actually real madras check would bleed, bleed. in the same way that you know denim is such a, a kind of of a changeable fabric it's instead unstable that it shrinks and yeah. it fades yeah. and it does all these other things. And so actually all these, these, these qualities that denim have are actual design flaws. But then over a, over a period of time, we embrace those flaws as, as qualities. So, you know, you want your denim to fade and you want it to shrink, you know, and you want it to, the knees to wear out so you can actually kind of darn them and make them good again. You want to age and show your person, show personality. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I like about menswear and style that you don't necessarily get with fashion because it doesn't give you the time or the quality of attention that, say, a beautiful madras shirt that's like 10 years old will have. Well, um, the other thing that I was telling him that, um, because the madras trek, right, um, it was obviously it was made in India and all that stuff, and there is yeah. an, um, I was telling him how there is a cotton towel in India that you can get now, right? And that also, it's like checks, but if you actually wash it, it bleeds, right? Wow. And it's it's a beautiful, it's it's absolutely fascinating check, right? And, because, and they sell it, and a lot of the priests have it, and it's normally used in West Bengal, right? And this towel, and... Um, Every time when we go to India, my mum loves it because she's always had them as a kid. So she always brings a few back. And, um, and she and when she wa- she won't wash it with anything else because she knows it, it will stop, you know, bleeding kind of thing. And when it does bleed, it just it wears off. It wears so much better. And, right. and the fabric, it's so much better. And it's quite, it looks absolutely beautiful uh, feel to it. I can't tell you how great it is. And Graham was saying the same thing about Madras check. He's saying nowadays, you know, the checks are so precise that it doesn't bleed and all that thing. But then it was so much fascinating that it would bleed. And, you know, it it was great to wear it. But now he said, I wouldn't wear, you know, Madras check doesn't look like Madras check. And I'm thinking, (laughs) (laughs) because they fixed the dye. (laughs) <laughs> fixed it yeah and that's why it is you know um yeah um on that note i would like to say thank you so much again to you jason for coming on board and stay well, Thanks, stay well. Yeah. bye bye